Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. All of you that are joining us online, we welcome you as well. Well, the Bible tells us that it's through faith, by grace and through faith, that we um, enter into the kingdom of God and become Christ followers. And that grace that he gives us, those blessings that we don't deserve, and yet he gives and he gives and he gives, is so amazing. And so this morning, I invite you to stand and let's begin by declaring his amazing grace this morning. Amen. 
amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I would be set free.
seated. I invite the ushers to uh, come forward at this time as we continue to worship through song and giving of our tithes and offerings this morning. Father God, we bring you these gifts this morning as an expression of gratitude, as an act of worship, and as an act of obedience this morning. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for that amazing grace that has freed all of us from our past and allows us to live the new life that our Savior examples for us. So we worship you this morning. Amen. Won't forget the wonder of how you brought deliverance the exodus of my heart. You found me, you freed me, held back the water to my release. Oh, Yahweh, you're the God who fights for me, Lord of It's a guiding light to my feet. You found me, you freed me, held back the waters from my release. Oh, Yahweh, you're the God who fights for me, Lord of every victory. Hallelujah, hallelujah, you have torn Hallelujah, hallelujah. Cause you stepped into my Egypt and you took me by the hand and you marched me out in freedom into the promised land and now I will not forget you God. I'll sing of all you've done Death is swallowed up forever By the fury of your love But you stepped into my Egypt And you took me by the hand And you marched me out in freedom Into the promised land And now I will not forget you, God I'll sing of all you've done Death is swallowed up forever by the fury of your love. You're the God who fights for me, Lord of every victory. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You have torn apart the sea, you have led me through the deep. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 as we continue our journey and our study through the Passion Week of Jesus. We're picking up in the account where uh, Jesus has now moved past the religious trials and into the political trials. He's experienced something that we all experience, but for him, it really is face to face, and, and, and that is the depravity of man. There's a lot of depravity in our world today, isn't there? When we think about depravity, it's just this sense of darkness, this evilness and wickedness, and we think, wow, the world is getting worse. I want to challenge that thought because it's not necessarily the the world is getting worse because depravity has always been around us. In fact, there's only two conditions that that you're in. You are either depraved or you're not depraved. How are you doing today? Matt Chandler said this, and I would agree with him, without a heart transformed by the grace of Christ, we just continue to manage external and internal darkness. I want you to think about that. This is a powerful quote. Without a heart that's transformed by Christ, we just manage external and internal darkness. You're either saved or you're not saved. Your heart is either transformed or it's not. But if your heart's not transformed, you are a depraved person. No offense intended. But that's the reality. That when we are born into sin, we are born into a state of depravity. And unless, unless Jesus changes that heart and gives us that new life, we remain in that depravity. It's just depravity at a different level. When we take a look at, at the depravity of heart... You've got to ask yourself, well, how do I know that I have a depraved heart? Well, a depraved heart is incapable of love and mercy. Because it's all about self-love. A depraved heart is incapable of knowing God unless God opens up the eyes of that heart and the eyes of the understanding to see. And Jesus here in these last minutes of his life, is encountering a level of depravity that when we look at it, we go, well, how, how is it that somebody could do that? Have you ever thought about that? You watch the news, you hear about something, and you go, how, 
How can one human being treat somebody else this way? Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the depraved heart. The heart that is governed by sin. And he's surrounded by depraved people in his trial. He's surrounded and all alone by people that, that have one objective. Destroy him within this. People seeking out only their, their own interest. And as I said, he's moved from the religious phase. He's, he's been betrayed and picked up in the garden and taken over to Annas, his first religious trial, then to Caiaphas and a few of the Sanhedrins in the midnight, you know, the 3 a.m. trial that they had, and, which was an illegal trial. Then they had the after-sunrise trial, which would have been Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, in order for the religious system to be able to say, yes, he's guilty of blasphemy. But as we're going to see, they were incapable of achieving the depth of what they wanted to do to Jesus, which was kill him. They found him religiously guilty, but they need a political conviction in order to, in order to get Jesus put to death. How do you do that? Well, you take him to the government. And so we're going to take a look at the three political trials that Jesus would go through and his betrayer, Judas, and the outcome of that and, and the depravity that is all wrapped up within that, looking at their hearts. But I want to challenge you as we look at this because it's so easy to call out sin in the lives of other people, isn't it? So, well, you're a pretty depraved person. They go, well, you are too. Well, I'm, I'm good in my own eyes. But as you journey through this, as we take a look at this, it's my hope that we will take a look at the, the old man, the old nature, the old person that we once were, and what God has saved us from, the level of depravity that was part of our old life that has now been put away with. By the work of Jesus within that. I'm going to ask that you stand as we read through our passages this morning. Matthew 27, 1 to 31. And as we read, really open up your heart to the work of the Holy Spirit that when we read something and, and you feel like God's speaking to that little twinge, that, that little wow, that, that gets you right here, let the Holy Spirit do the work. Verse 1 says, Now when morning came, and all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. When, then when Judas had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? You see to it to yourself. Well, he threw the 30 pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hung himself. Well, the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. And they conferred together with the money, and they, brought, they bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Quote, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one 
whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed me. Well, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he didn't answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? He did not answer them with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. And now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For they knew that because of envy that he had handled them over. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds and asked for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, well, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather the riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. And then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Well, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head with a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him, put his own garments back on him, led him away to crucify him. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. What a grim picture we see. And the level of depravity that is taking place. As Matthew gives to this account, we can understand that there is a depravity that leads to death, that leads to the destruction of the depraved. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Jesus was taken to Pilate to be put to death within this, this level of hatred, this level of angry um, bitterness that had gone on in the Sanhedrin was not going to be satisfied until Jesus was dead. It wasn't enough to, to declare him a blasphemer. They wanted him dead, and the worst kind of dead, a Roman death. So in order to get the approval of that, they had to take him to Pilate, the local governor that was there, within that place. And within this, they, they struggled because they, they had to get him to believe that Jesus was guilty of something worth dying, being put to death for in, in the Roman government. The Sanhedrin were not capable of putting a man to death. In fact, in John chapter 18, verse 31, it says, So Pilate said to them, 
Take them yourselves, judge them according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. So now we have the motive, right? What do they want? They want him dead. Now, we've got to understand who Pilate is. The office of the governor over the Judean area was assigned to a Roman official. Pilate was this official. And it wasn't a very pleasant job. If you were a Roman citizen, you wanted to be where? In Rome. Why? Because Rome had all the Rome had all the amenities that were there. They had the theaters, they had the hippodrome, they had all the good food, and they had all the different things. It was a nice place. You know what Rome did is they would occupy areas and they would go into these areas and they would try to duplicate little Rome or little Roman kind of entertainment things. When we go to Israel, we go to Caesarea Maritima and we'll see a hippodrome there and a theater and all the different things. Why? Because they want those connections to Rome. But if you were sent to Judea, to Jerusalem, where there was no culture, well, that was the outpost. And usually you got sent to an outpost because, well, you probably weren't the brightest bulb in the bunch. You got in trouble somewhere along the line. We know that Pilate was in charge from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. as the governor of that area. In the Gospel accounts, we see Pilate as somebody who would appear to be weak, but he is not weak. In fact, when you take a look at historical accounts about Pilate, Pilate was vicious. He would steal from the, the treasury of Jerusalem, of the temple. He would kill anybody that, that would step up against him. He would mix blood with sacrifice and make the Jews drink. He was a horrible, horrible guy. And so with that, he, he was not this guy that we would read that really struggled within himself. It was, it was a very difficult account to, to rule in this area. He served Caesar, and, and what made it so difficult was, in serving Caesar, you had to do everything Caesar's way, right? Right, because Caesar was in charge. But the difficulty is, you've got to manage a group of people that hate Caesar, now, what ends up happening is, on your watch, if the people that hate Caesar start a riot, what's going to happen to you as a manager of those people? Right? You're going to lose your job or lose your life. And so he has this tightrope that he's got to walk. He's got to, he's got to walk this line between the religious zealots and Rome. And how do you manage that? How do you negotiate that? It's very difficult. So here... This Pilate gets Jesus delivered to him with a group of Sanhedrin and religious leaders saying, we want this guy dead. And so now he has to enter into this trial phase. Meanwhile, something else is going on. If you take a look at verses 3 through 10, we have Judas as the backseat. Now, now, who is Judas? Well, Judas is one of the twelve. We know him as the betrayer. He's the one that betrayed Jesus. Uh, over into the hands of the religious leaders. There is a thing in our world, it's called unintended consequences. When you do something and you didn't expect it to happen a certain way, right? Well, Judas is suffering from some unintended consequences. Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. He was in charge of the money bags, and no doubt Judas was a little bit of a thief and within this. And, and so Judas was a bit upset. And in his being upset, 
he decided, well, you know, Jesus, it's been three years, I've been waiting, why are you not taking your kingdom, I want my place, I want my money? To call Judas a disgruntled employee would be an understatement. And so he decided that he was going to get his own. How do I, how do I get compensated for three years worth of work? Well, I know the Sanhedrin hate Jesus. And there's been rumor that there's maybe a price on his head. So Judas goes to the Sanhedrin and says, hey, look it, I know that, that you want Jesus. I'm planning my exit strategy, would you? What would you give me in 30 pieces of silver? So he gets his money, betrays Jesus in the garden. To whom? The Sanhedrin. And he was okay with that. But when the Sanhedrin decided that they were going to take Jesus to Rome, to Pilate, to be crucified, well, now Judas has a case of conscience. See, it was one thing for a Jew to betray a Jew to another Jew. Totally something different for a Jew to betray a Jew to Rome. How do you live with yourself? How do people view you? You're now ruined. And so the text tells us here in verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, notice what it says, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. The depravity of Judas drove him to a place of committing this great moral sin within this. And he didn't understand the depths. The word remorse there is an interesting word because the word remorse there in Greek is metalome. Metalome is very seldom used in the New Testament. And it, it means to basically um, to feel bad or, or have this be full of regret. It's different than the word that is used for repentance. That word is metaneo. Metaneo means to, to turn around to 180 degrees. So here we have a contrast between the difference between remorse, feeling bad, and repentance, meaning turning away, turning completely away within this. There's a big difference between Judas and Peter. Judas felt remorse. He felt bad morally bad about what had happened. That's what the remorse means. I feel morally bad about a situation. Metaneo, repentance, is a spiritual function. It means that in your spirit you grieve over that sin, and because spiritually you are grieving over that sin, you make that change by the power of God. Judas is looking at this and, and having this emotionally moral response. Why? Because he had not only turned Jesus in, but he had turned Jesus in and it's gone further than what he anticipated it would go. A true cru crucifixion within this. And so with, we see Paul even commenting on the difference here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-10, through 10, says this. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful, note, to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, 
Note, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. Judas was sorrowful, morally sorrowful, but it wasn't a sorrow that was leading to repentance. It stopped right there at feeling sorrowful or morally sorrowful, which leads to death. There's a lot of people that feel bad about what they do. But if that feeling bad doesn't lead you to a place of acknowledging your sin and repenting of that sin before a holy God, you remain depraved. You remain in that condition. So what did Judas do? Well, he tried to undo what he did. You know, it, it, it's kind of the thing where he goes to him and he goes, look, I'm sorry, let me give you back your money and let's just pretend it never happened. Would that work? You can't unring a bell. And once, once you cross that line, you, you, you can't go back. Once there's a betrayal, you cannot unbetray somebody. It... it betrayals and these things are, are scars. They're deep. You know, so many times you think about little kids, and, and it's so funny when kids fight, right? And you go over and you say, hey, Johnny, you know, I, I know you just slapped that kid. So go tell him you're sorry. Johnny walks up and he goes, sorry. <laughs> right? Does that do anything? No. No. I'm sorry. No, you're sorry you got caught. Right? You're going to do it because you have to do it. And so within this, the sorry doesn't undo the action. The returning the pieces of silver is a man's work that doesn't undo the sin or the violation. There isn't anything Judas can do in himself that's going to remove that guilt of sin. He returns with 30 pieces of silver to this, and the chief priest could care less, which is interesting to me and shows you the level of depravity of the world. If you don't get this, the world is going to use you to accomplish their own purposes. And they don't care about you. What they're going to do is they're going to use you, abuse you, and cast you to the side. The chief priest had used Judas. Here's our end. Taking the money back... You're guilty? You feel guilty because you morally violated this guy? You feel guilty because you betrayed your teacher that you've been with for three years that loved on you? You feel guilty? Guess what? Not my problem. You deal with it. And that's how the world, the depraved world, deals with life. They don't care about Judas. They don't care about how he feels. They just kick him to the curb. Now you think about Judas. He's a man without a country. Right? Can Judas go back to the other 11 disciples? No. No. <laughs> no. He's not going to go back. Peter may have missed and, and chopped off an ear one time, but he's probably not going to miss again. So that's not going to work. What's going to happen when Judas ever goes back up into Galilee where Jesus did 80% of his miracles, 80% of his teaching, and was well-loved? Could Judas ever go back up into the Galilee? No. And what kind of reputation in the Jewish culture would Judas have if everybody finds out that a Jew betrayed a Jew to the Romans? Would he ever be able to do that? Judas was hopeless, extremely hopeless in this condition and very selfish. Within this. 
Judas's greed and depravity cost him everything. Everything. And for Judas, there was no way out. His only hope was no hope was to take his own life and to check out. So he goes out and he hangs himself. We know that Judas, his action in our culture, in our mind, suicide is bad. And, and I'll mention a bit on a, in a minute, but in the Jewish culture, to hang yourself from a tree, to die hanging on a tree, was significant. Because in Deuteronomy it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. It was a significant statement. What was Judas saying when he killed himself by hanging himself on a tree? I am cursed. And I will remain cursed. I will, there is no hope for, for life after death for me. I am a cursed man for all eternity within this. Acts chapter 118 gives us a little bit more information. It's a parenthetical statement. It says this, Now this man, being Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. How did he acquire the field? He gave the money back to the, the guys, and we'll talk about it in a minute, and they bought the field for him, or on his behalf with his money. It says this, and he, he died hanging. It's, notice it says, And falling headlong, he burst. I hope you guys didn't have breakfast already. <laughs> in the middle of all this, and his intestines gushed out. There you go. But that tells us that he was hanging... And it probably had been up there for quite a bit of time. Why? Because cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And he had nowhere or no one to take care of him. He was depraved. He was a selfish man. And he sought out looking for himself within this. And he committed suicide. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people commit suicide. We have it in our culture today. As a chaplain, I go on a lot of suicide calls, and I've been a youth pastor long enough to, to encounter a lot of, of youth suicide. Hear me clearly. Suicide is the most selfish action anyone can ever do. Because you are worried about yourself. You are worried about your own life, and not the impact that and, and the wake of emotion and sorrow that you leave behind. I'm telling you this because of all of the counseling that I have done with people after the fact. Suicide is a permanent action to a temporary problem. It's a permanent action. You don't get to walk this one back. To a temporary problem. When you say, Carrie, what do you mean my problem's temporary? Let me put it in the context of this. All human existence in this life is temporary. It doesn't matter if you go home to be with the Lord at 2, 22, or 102. There's an expiration date on every single one of us. That's temporary. But eternity, forever. Whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever suffering you're going through, whatever depression or mental condition that you are going through, Understand this, in the context of eternity, is only temporary. And God provides a way through and a way out. We've got to understand that, that suicide violates 
the sixth command. You shall not murder. It doesn't, we read that and we think about murdering other people, but what about taking our own life? What about taking our own life? What are we doing when we do that? We're circumventing the will of God. We're saying, God, I'm going to be God. And God, there is no hope. If there is nothing impossible with God, then why are we telling God that the future is impossible? So we take a look at Judas, and Judas was in this level of depravity, in such a state of depravity that he had given up. Now, I don't know what the Lord would have had for him. It wasn't my journey, and, and the Lord is beyond that. And Judas was definitely one that was a vessel created unto dishonor, and there's a whole theology that you could get into it. But I do know this from the practical standpoint, that Judas was feeling remorse. But according to Paul, remorse can mature to repentance. And there's always that opportunity unto salvation when we move past our condition and we trust in the sovereignty of God. That God can save us from our level of depravity wherever we're at and wherever our thinking is. Judas's depravity kept him from seeing the grace of God, the love of Jesus that was there. As we talk with different people, we've got to understand that that suicide is, is not a terminal or, or a condition that sentences you to hell. Whatever your spiritual condition is when you die, that is the condition that is judged. So within that, we've got to understand that the grace of God carries us forward. And Judas, I wonder, and in my mind I wrestled with this, I wonder what would have happened if Judas would have waited and seen the resurrection. I wonder what would have happened if he would have waited and just seen. Well, I don't know. He didn't get that chance. The depravity of the religious leaders are seen in here too. Look at verses 6 through 10. It says, The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It's not lawful for us to put them to the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. So what do they do? They get together and say, Look, we've got these 30 pieces of silver that's blood money. We, we, we took it from God, which is interesting, from the treasury, and we used it to bribe Judas to get Jesus, and now we can't take this blood money and put it back into the treasury. What do we do it? How do we undo our bad thing? I know what we'll do. Let's go by the potter's field. The potter's field was a field that was on the south side of Jerusalem, it was a place where the pottery makers would take their broken pots or their, their pot shards and they would take them and they would, it was on the, the, in the valley of Himnon and it was, they would take and they just cast them out to this valley. It was a worthless piece of land. You couldn't do anything with it because it was full of pottery shards. You couldn't build on it. You couldn't grow in it. You couldn't do anything. Let's, so let's buy, this, let's buy this field that happens to be the field where Judas had hung himself. Let's buy this field for the 30 pieces of silver. And let's go ahead and let's create a place, a create it as a burial place for the strangers that are there. The strangers that come in this potter's field. 
It fulfills Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 to 13. It says, And I said to them, If it is good in your sight to give me wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And so I took the 30 uh, shekels of silver and threw them to the potter for the house of the Lord. We also find it in fulfillment of Jeremiah 19, verses 1 through 13. But it's interesting to see what they did. They took unclean money to buy an unclean place to bury unclean people so that they can feel good about what they did. Look at us. We were being, we're, we're trying to love the stranger by giving them. No, you're not. You're trying to feel good about your sin. And so that moral depravity drives even further with these guys within their actions. And so they buy this field, and it's called the field of blood even to this day. Meanwhile, Jesus is standing before Pilate here in, in where the depraved really become those that condemn. And within this, Pilate has this first encounter with Jesus, verses 11 to 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, and saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said to him, It is as you say. What's interesting about this is this is a different set of charges than what the Sanhedrin brought. What did the Sanhedrin bring? Are you the Christ, the son of David? That brought about a charge of blasphemy, which is a religious charge. What was the charge that they brought to Pilate? He says he's the king of the Jews, which is what? A political issue. Why is it political? Because if you're the governor of Rome over a Judean area, and a guy comes up and says, I am the king of the Jews, I am setting up my own kingdom, now what runs in conflict? This man's new kingdom and Rome. So Pilate says, well, I need to investigate this. Because we can't have another kingdom rising up on my watch. Who knows where Caesar's going to send me at this point? So he questioned me. He says this. He asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? And within this, Jesus responds and says, basically, it is as you say, or the colloquial, your words, not mine. You said it. And Jesus responds to, to Pilate within this. Then Pilate turns to the Sanhedrin, who were there. And mind you, in all of the trials, the Sanhedrin are there. Why? Because they're looking for that conviction. And the, and the Sanhedrin goes to him, and then they, they recount their whole trial and do all of this stuff. And Jesus sits there. And they slander Jesus in front of everybody. And Jesus doesn't say a word. I shared with you, I think it was last week, a couple weeks ago. Not every knucklehead needs an answer. You don't have to answer. Jesus had already given himself over to the account and said, Look it, I, I'm going. I'm going to the cross. I don't have to, it's not open for debate. I've accepted the will of the Father. But imagine Jesus. Here he's got Pilate on one side question, and he's hearing all these horrible things. And Pilate looks at him and he says, You're not answering him according to anything. These guys are bringing, Don't you know? Don't you have an understanding? This is your life, and Jesus doesn't say anything. So in this first initial account, in this first trial, Pilate hears all of this stuff, and then he hears the key word that is part of this, that he was a Galilean. Now, if you flip over into Luke, real quick, keep your finger here, but go over to Luke 23, 
we see the second trial that Jesus has to endure, and that's in front of a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. In Luke 23, beginning with verse 6, it says, And when Pilate heard, he, was, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. And Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some no, signs performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, and he answered and said nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes, guess what, were there, standing accusing him. Herod, with his soldiers, treating him in contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him to, back to Pilate. And now Herod and Pilate became friends. Did you catch that? They became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. What happened in this second trial? Well, Jesus goes over to Herod, Herod Antipas. This is the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. Did Jesus really like Herod? No. He cut off the head of his cousin. He was, he was a man that was totally depraved. At the words of his stepdaughter, he, he goes and he takes the life of John the Baptist. All he wanted to do was to see Jesus' signs and miracles. He didn't want to know anything. And within this, Jesus says, I'm not even going to talk to you and answer you. Jesus had spent a lot of the time in the Galilee trying to avoid Herod Antipas. Herod was the ruler up in that area and within that. But this is a fulfillment of these two parties coming together. You've got to see this. This is a Jewish king. He's Idumean, so he's half Jew, um, half Gentile given the authority by Rome to be a king up into this region. And within this, we see both a Jewish king and a Roman governor coming together. In Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against, against the Lord and against His anointed one. A lot of people say, well, it's the Jews that killed Jesus. No, the world killed Jesus. Everybody did within this. And again, we see that, that Herod is questioning him at length. We see the others that are coming in. Jesus doesn't say a word. And in Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. And like a lamb, he was led to slaughter. Like a sheep that was silent before his shears, he didn't open his mouth. And Jesus remains silent. So what does Herod do? He tells his soldiers, hey, you guys, he's not answering or saying anything. Have some fun with him. And so they start mocking him, and they put robes on him, and they start beating him and doing all these different things. Can you see the level of depravity of the world? Had Jesus done anything to deserve this? He didn't argue. He didn't debate. None of these things. Paul, or sorry, Peter later in Acts 4 uh, 26, 27, quotes the psalm out of, the, out of Psalm 2. He says, The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered against the anointed, the Lord against the Christ. For truly in their city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people. Where does the level of depravity lead? Murder. Depravity leads to murder. Do we see that in our world today? Is it growing? 
Yes. Blatantly. Herod says, I can't do anything with him. He's not saying anything. I'm not getting the show. So send him back to Pilate for the third trial. Jesus goes all the way back over to Pilate, verses 15 to 24, back in Matthew 27. It says, Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time they were holding a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. People gathered together. He says, who do you want me to send out? So what happened? It was a custom. In order for Rome to be able to be in good favor with the Jews, they had determined that we're going to have this custom that, I'll tell you what, once a year we're going to let this guy go. You get to pick who it is, just because we want to be friends. So the Jews would pick somebody that Rome was, you know, picking on as far as the Jews. And there was a notorious criminal named Barabbas. That was there. Pilate thought, ah, I got it. I got it. Jesus had been beaten up all night. He had been persecuting all these things within this. I'm going to put Barabbas, this notorious criminal, up against a loved rabbi out of the Galilee. Notorious criminal. Loved rabbi. There is no way anybody with half a brain is going to pick a notorious criminal over a loved rabbi who does miracles and just loves on people. Nobody would do that, would they? Nobody would, would, would go to that depth and that level or have that kind of a hatred towards somebody. That they would, it'd be kind of like picking, picking to free an axe murderer versus Mother Teresa. I mean, it just you wouldn't do that. Meanwhile... Pilate's wife sent a message to Pilate, who was sitting on the judgment seat, and said, don't have anything to do with this guy. I had a dream and I was up all night. Pilate's in a fix. What do I do? How do I manage this? Well, it shows the depravity of man. Who was the criminal they chose? Barabbas. Why? Because the Sanhedrin and the chief priests were going around creating a mob mentality. Here's something that I had never thought about until going through this passage today. How many crosses were preset on the hill? Three. We know that there were two criminals or, or insurrectionists that were crucified next to Jesus. Whose third cross was set up? Because Pilate didn't know that Jesus was coming. I wonder if that third cross was set up for Barabbas. And in the crucifixion, Jesus takes Barabbas' place. And we don't have it in Scripture, but, but it's something to think about, to ponder within that. Pilate puts it to the people. The people deny the offering. They want Barabbas instead of Jesus. And we have the depravity of the mob. Is the mob thinking at this time? No. Rioters don't think. They just react. All it takes is a couple of people to start a riot, and then they start going in a direction, and they do some really foolish things. Years ago, when I lived in, in Los Angeles, after the Rodney King beating and, and trials and all that stuff that was going on, I was amazed that the people of Los Angeles would burn their own city down. And then we come up here in Portland and they do it again. <laughs> the level of depravity. 
Why would you burn your own businesses and all of these things within this? Why would you pick a criminal over a, a, a rabbi? So what does Pilate do? Pilate goes to the people and says, Okay, you get Barabbas. Now what do you want me to do with Jesus? They yelled what? Crucify him. I'm glad you're not the crowd at that time. They were much louder. So Pilate goes over to a basin of water and he washes his hands. Why was he washing his hands? It was a symbol of, I'm washing my hands of responsibility of this. And the people said, let his blood be upon us and our children. Let's see. Judas, totally depraved, tries to undo what he is doing by doing what? Giving the 30 pieces of silver back. The high priest tried to undo what they're doing by doing what? Buying a potter's field. Pilate tries to undo the responsibility of sentencing a, a innocent man to death by symbolically washing his hands. Oh, I'm sorry of this. Can that remove the guilt? Absolutely not. You can't wash your hands of the situation and have that guilt removed. And instead of listening to his wife, men, if your wife comes to, a, comes to you and says, I've been up all night dreaming about something, God's put it on my heart that you go out and you buy a boat. There's somebody in here that knows that I got that in there. We need to listen. But depravity blinds us to what's going on. And it moves us in a direction and takes us further than what we want to go. To do things that we never should do within this. The people said, His blood be upon us. This trial and death took place in 30 A.D. In 70 A.D., what happens to Jerusalem? Completely destroyed. You don't know what you're saying. His blood be upon us. But here's the other side, the irony in this. I do want the blood of Jesus on me. I want the blood of Jesus to cover me. I don't want, I don't want to stay in my condition of depravity. Of sin. They didn't know what they were really asking or talking about. They wanted to take on the responsibility of, of, of Jesus' death. But the fact is, every single person in this room is responsible for Jesus' death. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus came to die for the depraved. That's you and I. Lastly, we are given an account of what happens. Pilate says, go ahead and go. Take him. And the soldiers take him in verses 27 to 31. And we see the level of depravity of these soldiers who make sport of Jesus, just like the soldiers of Herod's time, where they go and they, they beat him. In Matthew 20, 19, it says, the Gentiles mock and scourge and crucify him, yet on the third day he is going to be raised up. Jesus is taken to the praetorium which was basically the soldiers' bunkhouse. There would have been about 600 soldiers there at that time. Not all 600 soldiers, I doubt, were beating up on Jesus. But 
They took him out and they made sport of him. Because why? Now he's got the death sentence. Now, I want you to imagine this. These are Roman soldiers in a Judean outpost, surrounded by Jews, hating Jews, full of pent-up rage because they don't really get to go to war, which they are warriors, and they get a guy that is going to be put to death and basically are told, you can do with him whatever you want. We just got to make sure he gets to the cross. And they have their way with him. That level of depravity that is in the unregenerated person will take you further than you want to go. Cause you to do things that you never thought you would do. So who's going to save us from that depravity? Jesus. Unless the heart is transformed, we remain in depravity both internally and externally in a level of darkness that we can't even comprehend. This morning we're going to come and we are going to celebrate that which has made us free, the Lord Jesus Christ, in giving His, His body over in our place. While Pilate brought down the conviction and the Roman soldiers brought on the crucifixion, while Judas betrayed and the Sanhedrin declared guilt, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine so that we would be set free from the depravity and the hopelessness of having an unregenerated heart. We come together as a church once a month to be able to remember that, to be reminded of that, of the value that has been given to us as individuals because Jesus came and died for you. My encouragement to you is this. During our worship time here in a moment, you're going to be invited to come up and to be able to take the elements, the bread and the cup. Prior to doing that, ask God to search your heart and see if there's any wicked way in you. Confess that sin and repent. Don't feel sorry about it, but have a sorrow that leads to repentance. In other words, pray this prayer, God, break my heart over what breaks yours. And then celebrate the forgiveness of those sins. Celebrate the newness of life, knowing those sins have been washed away. Because the blood of Jesus covers us and washes away all of our sins and continues to cleanse us of sins every day. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can come before you with this table. We can come before you broken, knowing that you put all the pieces together. And Lord, as we prepare for this table, may you prepare our hearts. I thank you, God, that we can enjoy this time. God, you have set this table and made it available for anyone who has placed their faith and trust in you. This table is open to all believers. But if you're going to hang on to sin in your life, don't partake of the table. If you're not saved, you've got to ask Jesus to forgive you your sins before any of this makes any sense. Take this time now and do business with God.
Let's all stand before the Lord. What an amazing privilege it is to be able to stand before a holy God and to know that your sins are forgiven. That that which separates you from the creator of the universe has been removed. The penalty that comes from sin never has to be paid by you because it was paid by Jesus. What we have in our hands, this piece of bread, is a reminder. It reminds us of our Savior who encountered everything in humanity, the worst of the worst. And endured it in order to give us life. Jesus is the bread of life. We're reminded that we have life through Him. So as we enter into this time, I would encourage you to think about that new life that you have and how you can live that new life in a manner that brings God honor and glory. Let's thank God for the bread. God, we thank you for this bread. We hold it up to you and we ask your blessing upon it. Lord, we're reminded of the time when you broke that bread before the disciples and you gave it to them and you said, eat all of it. This bread represents my body. We do so as one body. We take it together as one body to honor you. We praise you and we thank you for the newness of life that we have. In Jesus' name, let's all take the bread together. We think about the blood of Jesus. As John the writer would say, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And continues to cleanse us. It's amazing the power in the blood to take a wretch, a depraved person, and to make them clean and holy. Holy by God's standards, which is amazing. As you stand now, you stand before a holy God, holy, because of the blood of Jesus that covers you and has cleansed you. Regardless of what the world says or people say you are, that doesn't matter. Because it's what God says that matters. And he says, you're mine. This cup is a, is a reminder of that covenant relationship we have with our Father in heaven. 
and think about how special that relationship is. As we take it, we take it together. One body, one faith, one God. Worshiping all the days of our life. God, we thank you for this cup and all that it reminds us of. May we honor you with our lives and our voices. Our actions and our thoughts. And may everything we say and do make you smile. We celebrate this from a place of great faith and grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all take the cup together. Thank you, Lord. It's our practice as a church to once a month take up a special offering. The ushers are going to come forward. This offering goes to help take care of needs within our community. Uh, whether it's physical needs, the widows, orphans, medicines, those things. So let me pray over that offering as the ushers come and you guys can all be seated. Thank you, God. For the provision of faith, the provision of grace and, and love and forgiveness that you've afforded to us. God, as we celebrate this time, we celebrate you. We thank you for this offering and, and the receiving of it. May God, we honor you with our voices and our lives even now. In Jesus' name, amen.
thank you. We thank you for the fact that you tell us we have already won, that our lives are found in you, and you've given us that victory. As we go out today, there's a couple of things I want to remind you of, let you know of. <coughs> Excuse me. We've been giving uh, the last couple of weeks to a special uh, gift that's going out to re- Ukraine. I can report that uh, there is the money is already much of the money is already uh, sent the first batch and we have a second batch that's going to be wired over. There were three vehicles loaded with um, just supplies that left uh, Marcel's church in Harmony and went into Ukraine and they were going to load up with people and bring them back. So all the shuttling is all happening. So we're going to Lord willing here in the next week or two we're going to gather those funds, wire out the second batch of money. So if you want to do that. The way to give that way is make sure you put it in an envelope, Market Ukraine, or you put it online and you Market Ukraine, so it would be put into the right account within that. A lot going on. Let me pray us out. God, I thank you that you've given to us the truth of your word that challenges us and changes us. Lord, we live in a depraved world. It was for that reason, Lord Jesus, you came and died to save sinners such as us. But Lord, as we navigate through the depraved, may we be that light. May we be redemptive in our conversations. May we be loving. And Lord, we pray that you would come back soon. We look forward to you coming back, Lord Jesus. Today would be a good day. But till then, may we be caught doing the things that make you smile. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.